That is our prayer once again this morning that uh, the words that we are about to meditate on, uh, the words that have been preserved throughout the ages, uh, will impart the wisdom that we seek and the, the growth in our own Christian lives that they are intended for. So again this morning we will be seeking to understand more of the person of Jesus Christ and especially in this time now as as we draw nearer to uh, remembering the passion of Christ and the sacrifice, uh, understanding who He is now is important for us. It is always important for us, and the timing of this uh, is under God's sovereign care as well. So we'll be looking this morning at uh, a few verses from Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and we again seek God's wisdom as these words are revealed to us. Mark 9 at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. May God grant us the wisdom that we seek. The message title this morning is Destined for Suffering. And again, as we approach our remembrance of the cross and the grave and the resurrection, uh, this comes to mind that um, this was Jesus' destiny when he came to the manger. But as we look at these, I want you to imagine uh, for a moment uh, you and maybe, maybe a small group of your friends or family, you have realized and have found that there is still one living dinosaur on the earth. What an amazing thing to see a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex yet or the Pterodactyl or all the other names I couldn't remember if I had to right now. All these massive creatures or unusual creatures. And you know, you've seen with your own eyes that one of them still exists. I would be amazed by that. I would have loved to live in a time, maybe not up close, but when the dinosaurs were on the earth to be able to see the enormity of these things, the behemoth, the the, the big woolly mammoth, massive creatures would have loved to have seen it. And that now imagine that you and a small group of family or friends actually have seen one. But you can't tell anyone. You imagine how hard of a secret that would be to keep? Secrets are hard enough to keep already, but imagine that you know that there are still, because people wonder, you know, how long ago, what, what exactly did they look like? You know, we 
we reconstruct fleshy creatures, you know, into, from the bones and everything. But imagine you've seen one, but you can't say a word. How difficult would that be for you? Or, or fill in the blank with some other story. Uh, maybe for you, uh, you know, the, the idea of alien life would be uh, one of those things that you just couldn't keep your mouth shut about if you found out that there were beings from another planet or another galaxy someplace. And you can't tell anybody. Maybe you can understand a little bit of what's going on in the disciples when they have come down from the mountain and they have just seen Jesus transfigured into a glorious body never seen by anybody before as well as Moses and Elijah with him. And you can't tell anybody. How difficult that must have been for them. And just the chosen three, Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of Jesus, they were given that special privilege to be able to witness that. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. A difficult task. So there's this, there's this waiting that happens for the disciples. You know, Jesus has been telling people all along in his ministry to not speak a word of this. Don't tell what just happened. Don't tell what you just saw. Seven times prior to this, there's some sort of reference to where Jesus tells people or reminds people not to say anything it happened first in, in uh, chapter 1 in a couple different circumstances where, where Jesus casts out uh, a demon. But as he's speaking to the demons, and the demons are speaking back and, and trying to give this uh, premature announcement of who Jesus is, he says, be silent. He wouldn't let them speak. He wouldn't let them tell anybody. There's another time it happens in chapter 3 as well. Chapter 5, you... you we read the story of uh, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter. And after she's raised, they were instructed not to tell anyone. you imagine how difficult that would be? Now, obviously, there were that circle of people around that, that circumstance that knew what had happened. But the idea is not spread that word. Your daughter has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody. There's a healing of the deaf man from chapter 7. Again, with the instruction, don't spread this. And even, even the disciples have been instructed once before. When Peter speaks for the group and says, you are the Christ, and, and has this, revelation from God himself of who Jesus is. Some say he was uh, John the Baptist. Others say he was Elijah or one of the prophets. But Peter, speaking for the group, says, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Now, I understand about the, the other ones to some degree. I know why he doesn't want the demons to speak and to keep blabbing about who this Jesus is because 
they truly have no unity with Jesus in the least. And they are not going to be the people that are going to uh, spread the word about who Jesus is, especially so early on in his ministry, that would stir up so much trouble for Jesus. Truly, we know that as his ministry goes along, when people begin to hear more and more about who he is, that trouble gets stirred up intensely, so much so that Jesus can't go into the cities anymore. So I understand why, why the demons are not permitted to speak about who Jesus is. I do understand, not as much, but I do understand why Jesus, when he heals somebody, don't tell others. We looked at that too when we were going through some of these different healings. People began to only see Jesus then as a healer, a wonderful attribute that he has. He is the great physician. He is the only one that could remove uh, the cyst from Judy's spine and, and completely heal Ray before he even gets there. We, we know that to be true. There's all kinds of evidence in the Word about that. So he is this wonderful healer, but people would have this tendency to only see him as one that can cure their immediate problem. I have a physical issue. Can you take care of that for me? And they would miss and they would be, they would be uh, satisfied with that and leave his presence not recognizing how much more he wants to reveal to them yet. So I understand why the, the people that are being healed shouldn't do that. Raising from the dead, that's a big one. And how do you keep that silent? There's great significance in what Jesus is doing there by raising people from the dead. You know how many people would come knocking on your door if, if they knew that Jesus could raise the one that just died? Maybe they would begin to think that if we could just have our, our family member back, life would be perfect again. And even for those that have lost loved ones recently, we know that it's not true. Life isn't perfect just because they're here. And life is difficult when they're gone. That, that sting of death continues to exist. And so raising someone from the dead may just give you the idea that the most important thing is life on this earth. And that's not it either. So I understand where Jesus is, is telling people not to spread the word. But when, when Peter says, you're the Christ, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that what he wants to be revealed? Truly, that's going to come out at the, at the end of Jesus' ministry. That's what's going to get him killed making himself one with the Father. So why the, why the instruction to the disciples at that point to not tell anybody that he's the Christ? Well, there's still this fogginess in the disciples' minds. I mean, right after that, you hear Jesus' rebuke of Peter that he doesn't have the things of God in mind. He's only thinking from a human perspective. So even though his, his declaration of who Jesus is correct, his understanding of that is still very limited. And so now they come down from the mountain. 
and they see in fuller detail that no one had seen before and no one since the glorious body of Jesus and what what it means to be what the Christ looks like in his fullness and then again don't tell anyone but this time there's a contingency to it it's the only one don't tell them until until you see what's about to happen don't don't tell anybody until you know that I've risen from the dead and that's a key that's a key for understanding the ministry of Jesus and why he's telling the disciples that now after all they've been given the secret to you has been given the secret to everybody else everything still is given in parables and they're not certain but the disciples know and yet they still have to wait because their knowledge still isn't complete either so there has to be good reason why the disciples need to wait there has to be a reason why this this close inner circle of Jesus can't say anything until something else takes place and the reason is there's still this there's still confusion there there's um, there's something that they are still a bit fuzzy on and you see that when you when you look at uh, their response uh, what is what does this rising from the dead mean anyway this was going to throw a big wrench in their understanding of the coming Christ the one that was prophesied about don't sell anything until after I've risen from the dead and that's what they're that's what they're wondering what what does that mean but you notice the the response they give isn't isn't that I think they're getting to know Jesus a little bit and obviously Jesus knows them but they don't ask that question maybe that would seem a bit ignorant so the question comes in a different form um, uh, why why do the scribes say Elijah must come first we, we understand what we think we understand what he was saying but this whole raised from the dead as much as they're confused about that they're not going to bring that up so they bring it about in a different way and these three these three Peter James and John they should know they should have some growing understanding of what being raised from the dead means all of them would have been familiar with those that have already been raised they would be familiar with the story of Elijah uh, raising the widow's son from 1st Kings 17 and if you want to look at these stories you can jot those down um, if he it, if they would remember and they should there was that circumstance where Elijah went to the widow and they were in dire straits they were about to sit down and eat their last meal and Elijah says well make something for me and God blessed that home and then in that same home the woman's son dies and Elijah raises the child back to life again they should know that 
They should already know that. They should also know of the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. And who raised the Shunammite son? Elisha. Elisha also raised somebody from the dead, but not just one. There was that mysterious time when somebody else was raised from the dead in the presence of Elisha, except it was Elisha's bones. And somebody was, a dead person was hastily thrown into the grave and they landed on top of Elisha's bones and they were raised from the dead. You see that story in 2 Kings 13. They know about people being raised from the dead. So there, there is this understanding that it does happen. And, of course, these three were the inner circle again at the healing and raising of Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John were there for that. So they're familiar with the fact that not only did it happen in the past, but Jesus did it as well. But what does it mean? What does, what does this rising from the dead mean? And maybe the deeper question behind that, why does Jesus have to die? If Elijah is going to come and he's going to bring about this change in, in the kingdom, in our understanding of things, in the timeline of God's eternal plan, why does Jesus have to die? And they wrestle with that. Everything they were expecting about that circumstance has just been challenged. They're expecting a, a military overtake. Certainly now the kingdom will be restored because everything seems to be falling into place. Even when you get to the book of Acts, as Jesus is about ready to depart, the, the disciples are still wondering, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom? They're still trying to figure out, and now before his death, they're trying to figure out, why is death a part of this? If, if there's this prophecy that needs to be fulfilled, why, why death? Why Jesus? Jesus uh, spoke of Elijah's coming. For them, that seemed to signal the fact that we're one step closer. But now Jesus uh, makes them take at least a step back. Because what they thought would be the advancement of the kingdom seems to end in tragedy. And they still don't understand what this rising from the dead might mean, especially as it comes to Jesus. Elijah uh, spoke of restoring all things. But how does the cross fit with that? So Jesus provides this uh, level of clarification. Uh, even though these are the closest people to him and the rest of the disciples as well. 
And even though to them has been given the secret, they still are limited in their understanding. So Jesus begins to shed a little light on what that is going to be, what, that, what all of these statements have, have meant. Jesus says Elijah does come. And in Matthew, Matthew records uh, the fact that when Jesus said, surely Elijah does come, they understood that to mean John the Baptist. Mark doesn't record that for us. Matthew does. They understood what, what Jesus meant by that, that Elijah must come, and it, they were, he was speaking of John the Baptist. But there's still something uh, tied into that that they don't get yet. There's something about what they would have hopefully remembered as coming from uh, Malachi. Malachi 3, 1. See, I, send, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. There is one coming. There is a messenger that's going to prepare a way before me. And they should know that as well from the last prophetic book of the Old Testament that there is a time coming where a messenger will prepare the way. Also from um, Malachi 4, see, I will send, this is, this is where they would get that. I, I send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. They understood the prophecy that Elijah would come first. But their understanding of that meant a more immediate transfer of the kingdom and the power to Jesus at that time. And there's still this confusing question of the suffering and death that they just don't understand. Maybe this, this will help us. When it says all things will be restored, what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, if you, if you look uh, back at uh, 3.1, Malachi 3.1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is, this is the last prophetic voice before God is essentially silent for 400 years. Now the prophetic voice enters back in again in the person of John the Baptist. And then truly in Jesus as that one true prophetic voice. But there will be this, this messenger that would be sent and that's going to be restored and now, now a message from God will come once again and silence is not what will mark them. Look at that uh, ending phrase there. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. What has been missing from the, from the worship of the people? And if you're reading along in our, our Bible reading through the year, you know exactly what the temple would have uh, shown the people. The glory of the Lord, whether it's settling on by a cloud or fire, 
that presence of God in the temple as he resides in the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, and God is there physically in the temple. God is with his people. And now here's Jesus, and that's been restored to a, a very visible understanding of the presence of God. And also, uh, the messenger of the covenant. This covenant faithfulness, covenant keeping God is going to continue to unfold his covenant plan before them. It's going to look radically different than what they would have understood. Uh, the idea of, of what God had been trying to do for his people has been misunderstood all along the way. And again, our readings are proving that to be true. They just don't understand what's in front of them, what God is saying, what God is showing them, where God is bringing them, what the end result will be compared to what they see in the moment. What will be restored is the very uh, voice of God, again, speaking to the people. The very presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, as well as the, the unfolding of the covenant promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. These, the, these are three of the things that are about to be restored. Three very critical things for the people to, to understand what that, what that means, what it's going to look like. And it also says in our, in our text from Mark what has already been written. When you, when you read from uh, Isaiah 53, you hear about how he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we esteemed him not. He was smitten by God and afflicted. And the suffering that Eli, uh, Isaiah paints about the one that would save them it's already been written. They still have their minds wrapped around this fact that things are going to instantly change, but they're also forgetting some of the things that have already been written down. And it's written down so that the, the plan of God would be clearly understood as it happens. Jesus was destined for suffering. Revelation reminds us that Jesus was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. That's a hard one for us to get our minds around. That before time and earth and um, this dwelling with God in a, in a realm that He created, before all of that took place, the plan was to send Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, to redeem all of that. Plan B was not, they sinned, we better figure out what to do. Plan A was, we know how this is going to turn out, but before it even starts, we'll prepare a way for things to be restored to the way we want them to be. 
intimate fellowship and union with God without any sin. All of that was part of the eternal plan of God before time even began. And suffering was going to be a part of that. The sacrificial lamb was the plan of God from the beginning. The three disciples were told to wait until after the resurrection to share that they had seen what they had seen. Why? Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense without the cross and the grave and the resurrection. They might try to figure out what this death thing might mean and what it means when Elijah might come and Jesus wants them to wait until they have a fuller understanding after the event has taken place because it doesn't make sense until then. That's the same for you and I. Life does not make sense for us without the cross, without the grave, without the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't make sense of life without that. You can't make sense of what happens when people die. Why, why is there death and where's our hope? You can't have hope without the resurrection. You can't understand what joy is until you know that this will all one day be over with and God's eternal kingdom will be in its final state and sin and sorrow and suffering will be no more and you will be filled with joy always and you can't understand that without the suffering of Jesus. You won't know what peace is until peace has been restored through the cross. You don't know exactly what grace looks like. That undeserved favor until Jesus dies in your place. You don't understand love fully until you see the willing heart of a father that would choose to sacrifice his son for you. You don't understand love fully without the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't understand fellowship fully until you know what it is to be rejoined as God's people in a way where I don't look at you with all your flaws and you, me, and where we can enjoy fellowship with God without worry that I am sinful before Him. We don't understand that kind of fellowship outside of the cross. You don't understand justice. Without the cross, you can't. You can't understand justice in this world until you know that Jesus was punished for it all. There is a just God who takes vengeance on every sin because it cannot exist with Him. And the cross was the justice where Jesus paid the price for all who would believe. You don't understand justice without the cross. You don't understand forgiveness without the cross, without the suffering of Jesus Christ. You don't understand what forgiveness is. None of them are fully understood 
without the cross. That's why Jesus said, wait. You want to tell people about the glorious experience you had, but you don't understand what that means yet. One day they would stand there with Jesus, with Moses and Elijah, in their glorious resurrected bodies as well, and then they would ultimately understand. At this point, they still don't. They don't fully understand how the cross and the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection, all of that, plays into everything that has been lost. All things will be restored. And the list that I read from here is just a short list. So much more will be restored by what Jesus does after a life of suffering, a shameful death, and a glorious resurrection. It's not understood by the disciples at this point because their mind is still in a different place. And for you and I, we need to remember that as much as we try to make sense of the world, if we try to do it again from this limited perspective and we don't include the the life and suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you try to figure out uh, what to do with social injustice or what do you do with political powers and what do you do with uh, illness and death and division in families and everything else, how do you, how do you wrestle with all that and come to a, a good landing place? You can't, except through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the disciples would have to wait for. That's why Paul would later say, I preach Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Because everything makes sense now. With the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can fit everything in our world neatly together in a way that shows why it exists and what the outcome will be. Don't tell anybody yet. Because you haven't understood it. But for us, for those of us that know Jesus, those of us that are being redeemed and restored, we know We have a better understanding and yet we're much like the disciples where we need to be reminded over and over and over again because I forget. I forget the whole picture. I settle on one little attribute of God and I think that's the most important thing and I forget about all the other things And so when you and I encounter the world around us and they're, and they're missing peace and they don't have hope and there is no love or love's been shattered or there is no forgiveness in their life when pain and death and suffering are still a part of it, you and I have a wonderful word to give them. Jesus came to restore all things and it's going to include what we're still coming up to remember. passion of Christ. You think about the suffering that he went through. It's overwhelming. But it all makes sense. They were told to wait until after. We're, we're in the after. It's not ours to wait anymore. Paint the full picture. But don't wait anymore. Jesus was destined for suffering, but he has conquered all of that already. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, as we try to get our minds around 
your existence, which is futile at this point. Our minds are still so limited to try to understand an eternal being, uh, let alone one who is perfect, and we don't understand that. It's, It's so hard for us to get our minds around the fact that your your existence from eternity was a, an existence destined for suffering. Uh, we, we often fear the next trip to the doctor, maybe the dentist or uh, something that we're going to experience some pain or discomfort or uncertainty and that was what your life was marked by. And as you came to earth to fulfill that, your whole life was marked by suffering from, from birth until death. Uh, but we are so grateful that you persevered all the way to death, even death on a cross. So help us, Father, to keep our story straight, to remember that Uh, All the things of our world have their uh, full explanation through your life and death and resurrection. And even as we as your followers follow in your footsteps, we know, we remember, our lives are marked by suffering as well. We suffer for the name. And it is our joy. Help us to remember that. It is our joy to suffer for the name, to be counted worthy to suffer. And then help us to paint that picture of the redemption of all things, the restoration of all things that only happens in you. We give you praise today. We lift your name on high. The name of Jesus. Amen.